Good morning. Our Bible reading this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. So last week we saw the wonder of God's salvation through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And this week we will see how we are to live in the light of that mercy and grace. But before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great goodness to us in the gift of our Lord Jesus and our hope of eternal life with you. Thank you for the gift of your word. Your word is life, and we are given you life by the word. Also, we are given growth. Help us to be faithful in our reading and studying your words, that we will taste and see that the Lord is good. We pray for James as he brings your teaching to us. Open our minds and hearts to receive your message. Thank you that we are a chosen people. Help us to live out our calling and help us to seek to live lives that are honouring to you. Father, we praise you and to you be all glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Peter 2 from verse 1. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All right. Well, as we've said, we are continuing on with the series in 1 Peter, looking at this idea of life as exiles, one of the major themes of the letter. Uh, and I want to start with a, a quick little story that I really think helps us get to the heart of this first section that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. Uh, so this dude here is King Louis XVI. I probably didn't need to put his name up. You all knew. Uh, but he had a son, okay? And what happened was, was that when... This guy's reign was coming to a pretty tumultuous end where he was essentially ran out of Paris by a mob of people that were politically opposing a bunch of stuff that he did. Uh, his son, whose name here was Louis Charles de France, okay, was captured by his enemies when his dad fled the city. And now, look, 
part of the story is true, part of it's possibly apocryphal. Like the actual events are certainly true, whether he said these specific words or not, that's always one of those, you know, tough to figure out whether it's French propaganda or not. But he essentially was exposed to all manner of foul living. He was the, the prince, the Dauphin, and he had grown up in a very privileged situation. And so they thought to themselves, if we can corrupt this child, if we can make him completely unfit to be king, that will help our political cause. So they exposed him to rich foods, filthy language. Uh, there's also some, some sexual stuff that they might have been doing. Like it was pretty dark, right? And the story that was told afterwards when he was actually eventually recovered from those whom he kidnapped was that he hadn't actually partaken in any of these things that they tried to force upon him. And when his, his captors you know, were frustrated that he wasn't actually participating in all these things that they put in front of him, so the story goes, he said, I cannot do what you ask, for I was born to be a king. It's this powerful concept that he had this grounded idea of who he was and what that meant for how he was to live. Now, like I said, it's possibly apocryphal. It's a pretty impressive move for a 10-year-old, but it still gets to this idea that how we live flows out of who we understand ourselves to be. And as we've been seeing in this letter of 1 Peter, where we've got Peter, disciple of Jesus, writing from Rome to these guys who we you know, think possibly had become Christian in Rome, but then sort of sent out to the furthest reaches of the empire and that sort of stuff in what's now modern-day Turkey. All right? We've recognized that in the first part of this book, Okay, he has been trying to ground the people that he's writing to in their identity as God's people. And this is the third sermon that we've now spent that's sort of under this umbrella heading of the identity of God's people. And we've seen through this that there's a lot of ideas that Peter is trying to pack into these small sentences. All right, these are just some of the, the words and concepts that we've looked at. And we've talk, been talking about how it's all quite deep and rich stuff. Like, on, in all honesty, this is not a joke. Every single one of those words we could probably spend a sermon on just in themselves. But as we've been working through, we've been trying to put some visuals up to help us understand what Peter is getting at in this big picture sense. And so one of the things that we've seen is this idea that God's people, where they stand with Jesus, is that they're in God's mercy, in a living hope. They've been given a new spirit. They have this inheritance that's in heaven for them that will never perish, spoil, or fade until the coming of their salvation. Peter's been clear to say, that's where you stand with Jesus. And he's been working through this. He's been clear to just say to them, look, there are ways that you used to live in. There are things that you used to be a partaker of. But now that you know God, you live differently. And we saw last week how one of the things that he's kind of trying to ground them in is this idea that they have been now called to focus on the grace that's to come, the heavenly future that they have before them, the fullness of their salvation, that they're doing this with a knowledge that they have been set apart, that they've been made holy, that they're foreigners in this world, that they don't truly properly belong to this place that they're in now, but that they have a heavenly home and that as they know all this about themselves, they're to love one another. Okay, like I said, there's lots and lots of concepts, and that's why we're trying to put it together in, in some picture forms to, to help us remember it all. But it's just it's jam-packed, and, and you sort of get a sense of, as we've been working through it that this picture that Peter is building up is just a rich, deep understanding of where we stand with Christ and who we are in him. And, he, and he's got more for us this week. It's not over yet. 
So we saw that at the end of, of chapter, we sort of left the last couple of verses at chapter one last week saying that they kind of partly belongs to last week's passage, partly belongs to this week. And it finished up by this. It said, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, okay, and purifying yourselves by obeying the truth is, is faith in Jesus, New Testament obedience we've talked about in this context is faith in Christ. All right, now that this has happened, you have a sincere love for each other, love one another deeply. Okay, again, it's this idea of you, you were impure, you had these evil desires, you were disobedient, now you've been purified, so therefore be loving children. For you've not been born again of, peri- of, sorry, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. And we talked last week, we didn't look at these verses specifically, but we talked about this idea of how everything that's happening in this world is going to fade away compared to the eternal stuff that's to come. And so he says, for all people like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Sorry, guys, I'm just going to fix my mic up here because it's come out somewhere and it's falling off. All right, we'll try again. So we've got this idea that there's this sense in which we are withering and perishing, flowers falling, okay, all this sort of idea, grass withering, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So again, contrast between the perishable, withering, fading life that we had and now the imperishable, enduring, forever life that we have, all coming through, this was the word that was preached to you. This is the gospel that you've heard. This is the message you've heard. And now he's going to build on this again. So he says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy and envy, and of every kind of slander. Again, we've got this idea of there was an old way in which you lived, okay, but now there's a new way, all right? And he says, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. It's a word picture here, but that, that, that word crave, it's this, this idea of longing and desire. If you've previously had evil desires, now you have a good desire, like a newborn baby, to crave pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted, again, that spiritual milk idea, tasted that the Lord is good. Right? You did have an old way of living. Malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy, slander, disobedience. Now that you've been born again, like newborn babies, crave the good stuff. Crave the things that are going to help you do all the things that Peter's been talking about to grow up into your salvation. You stand in a certain place now with Christ, in his mercy, in a living hope, having been born again until the coming of his full salvation. There was all these ways that you used to live in, but now that you're not in those things, grow up into your salvation and then the picture that he gives us of what that looks like is like a newborn baby crave this pure spiritual milk. You've tasted the Lord is good. Crave more. Desire more. Want more. All right, he's just adding to all these pictures again and again. It's so rich, this picture of what we are to be, and he's using all these different word pictures. But it's all to get at this idea that you, you once were one thing, but now you're another thing, and I want you to profoundly understand this new thing that you are. That's what he's writing to these guys about. That's what he wants them to get. Because, as, as we've said, he's got some really tough stuff coming up for them in the middle part of this letter. And so now he starts, starts a new idea here. Right? So draw a line in all those ideas. I've got more for you, he says. He says, as you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, 
rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. Now we're going to pause just for a second here because this living stone idea is one that he's, he's kind of making a big deal out of. There's some stone imagery through these next couple of sections here that he's drawing on a bunch of Old Testament passages to try and convey again to the people that he's writing to the profoundness of where they now sit with God and who they are in Christ. So this idea that the living stone being rejected by people comes from Psalm 118, where it says, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. There was a sense in which there was this, this living stone, but it, it, you know, it was rejected, but now it's the cornerstone. Now it's the foundational piece. So when he talks about the living stone, he's talking about Jesus. And, and Peter seemed to like this idea quite a bit because this isn't the only time that we have in Scripture where he uses this. In Acts in chapter 4, he says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no un- other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And the reason that Peter probably liked this so much is because in each of these gospel references here, Jesus himself referred to himself as the living stone. And so Peter's taken Jesus' words, this idea of the stone which the builders have rejected, which has now become the, the, the cornerstone, and he takes this idea, but he does something new with it here where he says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Jesus was the living stone who was rejected but has become the cornerstone. Now you also, like living stones, like Jesus, okay, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, a set-apart people to serve God, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And I think that here in the context of this letter, these spiritual sacrifices have a particular sense that he's sort of alluding to here. Normally, we think about spiritual sacrifices as acts of worship, which they absolutely are. But I don't think it's a coincidence that here, when he's talking about you also like living stones, that he's talking about the living stone who was rejected by humans. Peter's going to go on in this letter, and he's going to talk about the suffering of the believers of Jesus who suffer like Christ, who serve in difficult circumstances, who persevere through injustice with their eyes firmly set on the example of the suffering Christ. I think here, by using this imagery, he's hinting at the spiritual sacrifices that they're going to make are one that involves suffering, that involve difficulty and challenges and that sort of stuff. You too, like the living stone who was rejected, you guys also are being built into a spiritual house to make spiritual sacrifices, which has, I think, this idea of suffering attached to it also. You've got the, the dignity and privilege and honor of being a living stone like the living stone, but you should know that that comes with these, these sacrifices that you're going to have to make. Okay? So that's what I think the meaning is there. All right, he then goes on. For in Scripture, in Isaiah 28, 16, it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious stone. He's now using another Old Testament passage, grabbing more stone imagery to sort of continue this theme here. I lay a stone in Zion, that's the holy city of Jerusalem, that's the Old Testament name for it, a chosen and precious cornerstone. Same idea. There was a living stone that was rejected, became the cornerstone. Now we have a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who puts trust in him will never be put to shame. 
He's going to make an explanatory point here. Your living stones, making offerings that are probably going to involve suffering and that sort of stuff. But so you know, the ones who trust in this stone will never be put to shame. As it says, now to you who believe, this stone is precious. In your ESV translations, it says something like, so the honest for you who believe, okay, that, that sort of idea. The important thing is, is that there's something for you who are believing, but there's a very different thing for those who do not. So for those who believe, the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected, again, going back to that Psalm 118 idea, has become the cornerstone and now he quotes from Isaiah again. He's just grabbing Old Testament verses to, to sort of help pack all this stone imagery full of meaning. Now he says, for them, for those who don't believe, it's a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Believers are going to see this stone as precious. Believers are going to understand who he is, the cornerstone. But those who reject him, this stone is going to be something that causes them to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message. The reason it's a stumbling stone to them is not because it's not good in and of itself, but because they refuse to listen, they stumble upon this stone. They don't take the stone and understand what it's meant to be, and so they trip upon it in their disobedience, which is also what they were destined for. Now, this, this idea of being destined or, you know, to, towards something is an idea we've already seen come up in 1 Peter a little bit back in chapter 1. It says, to God's elect, those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And it's a similar sort of idea happening here. Just as though God's people have been chosen by God's foreknowledge, so too these people who are disobedient have been appointed and assigned to this in some sense also. And I'm not going to unpack too much of this now. I have a funny feeling this might come up in the what do you want us to preach on in term four uh, sort of stuff. It normally does. But... Just pointing out that, again, there's this con consistent sense that God is in control of all these things that are happening, that he's chosen those who are his, and he's rejected those in their disobedience, and in some sense appointed them to it. He goes on, because that's not really his focus. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession." That's who you are. Those who believe the cornerstone is precious. Those who don't believe, they stumble upon this in their disobedience. They don't listen to the message. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And again, we could honestly, we really could unpack this for ages. All of these ideas are drawing upon these deep, profound pictures from the Old Testament. But just really quickly. A chosen people in the Old Testament, the chosen ones were Israel. He'd chosen them out of all the nations on earth to be his special people. And the, the word for people here, it's, it's those that share a common lineage. But it's interesting, right? Because as we've seen, he's writing to those in, in Bithynia, in Asia, in Cappadocia, in Galatia, that, that sort of stuff. These guys did not necessarily have a common lineage, but he's saying that now, by believing... You have become chosen out of all the nations on the earth, and, and you're now a people. You don't actually have a common physiological lineage, but you now do have this spiritual lineage which you share together. All of you in this region that I'm writing to, different towns, different places, different families, all that sort of stuff, now, as you believe in Jesus, you have become a chosen people that need to see themselves as a group together. 
All right? Across the region, all you guys recognize now this common lineage that you have. And he says a royal priesthood. But typically, in the Old Testament, the priests weren't actually royal. He's combining two different ideas here. The, the, the picture of the kings and the picture of the, the priests. He's saying you're now a royal priesthood. You are children of God the king set apart for his service. The, the, the Levites were, were the only ones that could serve as priests in the temple. There was a sense in which they were set apart for special service to God. And now he's drawing on this sort of idea. So you, you were not a people, but now you are a people, and with a particular flavor, this royal sense, you're, you're kids of the king, but also set apart to serve him. And a holy nation. Nation idea here, it's people with common kinship, culture, traditions, and all that sort of stuff. Again, this is not something that they shared naturally. This is really important, guys. I need you to get, get this, okay? He's defining for them who they are in radically different terms than how they would have previously perceived themselves. Yes, they come from a kind of a common area. They might have had Roman traditions that they shared as sort of part of the Roman Empire. There would have been some similar things, but these also were very distinctly, okay, people with different cultures and traditions of their own that he's now saying to them, now you guys have this commonality through believing in Christ. He's defining for them, this is who you are now. I know how you've seen yourselves to be, but this is who you are now. You, you are God's special possession, the one God has claimed, especially for himself. That's how I want you to see yourselves. Remember, he's referred to them as exiles, as foreigners. There's a sense there in which they, they no longer fit. Now, we've talked about the possibility that they're political exiles from Rome, but there also is this sense of them being exiles here in this world, that there's a spiritual home, that there's inheritance waiting for them in heaven. All of this is designed so that they might see themselves in a different way to how they've seen themselves naturally. And here's the kicker. It's so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into a wonderful light. There's a purpose to it. You've been made into this thing for a purpose, and that purpose is so you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, right? Is that idea again. You were this, you're now this. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Okay, can you see what he's doing again and again and again? Same idea. You've been outside of mercy. You were not a people. You were rejected. You were disobedient. You were common. Okay? But now in God's mercy, you're a people of God. You're chosen. You're holy. You're royal. Right? You were perishable, withering, fading. But now you're born of an impenetrable, imperishable sorry, seed, enduring forever. In your old self, you had evil desires, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Now that you've been born again, you have these good desires to grow up into your salvation. You once were this thing, but now in Christ, in his mercy, in the living hope that he gives, being born again, you are these things. We're the heavenly home. This exile idea, it doesn't go away. This is how you're meant to perceive yourself. This is the journey that you're now on. This is what he wants them to grasp in a really deep and profound level. So this is the idea. We've seen this before, and now he's adding that, that royalness, holiness again, 
and being part of a people right, as we work towards this good end. Right, you were those things. You were alone, separate, broken, all this stuff, evil desires. But now through the cross, you've been made a chosen, royal, holy people in God's mercy with a heavenly home that you ought to be focusing on looking towards. Okay, like I said, there's a, there's a lot there, but you can see that as much as he's using all this different language to build in all these different ideas, that like I said, we can spend a lot of time on, and it's worth reading through this slowly, okay? It's worth in growth group and in your own reading during the week to look at this stuff, grab a commentary, grab, you know, grab a study Bible or something, and, and see the, the meaning behind all these words, because it's rich and deep and powerful. The, the, the core idea that I want you to get, guys, is the way that Peter keeps on saying to all these Christians, you were these things, but now you're these things. And that's so important because we still have, have all these things. There's a sense in which now there's a, a tension for us as we live in this world. We are a holy, chosen, royal priesthood. We've been made into the people of God. But see, there are still these, these things around us okay, that, that we have to decide, am I going to go back to those things? There, there's a tension. He says, rid yourselves of malice, envy, hypocrisy, slander, deceit, disobedience. There's a spiritual reality in which you are no longer the person that you once were, and yet you have to make this choice. There's an exhortation. There's these imperatives that are given to where you also have to do these things. And what, for Peter here, is the motivating factor is understanding who they are now in Christ. Remember last week where he says, love one another. Why? Because you've been born again and you do love one another, so just love one another. His profound, deep reasoning for why they should love one another is because you've been you know, purified and so you do love one another, so, so love one another. You, you are now a thing, so be that thing. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special people. But this is the other part to it. So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so it's not just that we've got to make a choice to not be these things, but in a world in which so many people are still in these things, we declare the praises of God. Because the world is not just now this difficult place that we have to live in until we get to our fullness of our salvation. It is that. But it's not just that. Because we still have a responsibility while we're here to be declaring God's praises with the hope that others too will join us as part of the family of God. And so there's two things that we're meant to be taking away from this. We are meant to be turning away from evil desires, malice, envy, hypocrisy, slander, deceit. It means that when you go into your workplace this week, and there's a temptation where you could you know, fudge some things. You could be a little less than honest. You know, there might be profit to be gained, there might be embarrassment to avoid it, all that sort of stuff. You, you can say in that moment, actually, I, I'm not going to do that because that's not who I am in Christ. 
If you, you go into school and you're tempted to, to, to cheat on, on something and, and again, to, to maybe be disobedient, to not follow the rules, to, to look for a workaround and all that sort of stuff. Now, that, that's wrong, but I'm not just not going to do it because it's wrong. It's because to do that would be to be acting like my old self, who I no longer am, and that, that's not who I am now, so I'm not going to do that. It's better for me to, to have to suffer the consequences of a less than great assignment rather than do something that I'm not actually called to, to be, that, that, I'm, that I no longer am in Christ. You know, I could keep going with, with the concrete examples, but the, but the key thing is, is because I, I could run through like dozens of dozens of lists here, guys. Like the the way that you do relationship. You know what? I, I could actually slander this person right now. I could be full of envy for the things that they do. I, I could be hypocritical and all this stuff, but I'm, I'm not going to do that stuff. Not just because it's wrong, but because that's not who I am. Even if I've been doing those things, that, this is the, the kind of mind-blowing part, right? Even, because you know, the assumption here is, is that if he's telling them to rid themselves of these things, it seems like Peter is assuming that maybe they are doing those things. But he's not defining them in terms of the, these things that they have been doing possibly still, but rather who they are in Christ. So you may be perceiving yourself as actually, I have a real problem with, with lying. I'm, I'm a liar, or I'm just disobedient. I'm not a very good Christian, or I, I'm really I'm hypocritical, and I hate this about myself. And, and you sort of perceive yourself as those things. Now, look, don't be foolish about this. There, there's some truth in that. Those are real things that you're struggling with. That's part of who you are. But nowhere near close to the reality of who you are in Christ. A royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation. And because I'm these things, I'm not going to participate in all this disobedience and, and, and other horrible stuff. And as I don't do that, I'm going to understand that this great privilege that I've been given in Christ, it's so I can declare the praises of God. It's not just to keep me ethically pure myself. It's not just something that I do in order to keep myself clean so that I might feel better about myself. That, that's not what this is just about. It's about recognizing that there are all those other people out there that also need to hear the praises of God. Because while it might be true that God has chosen some according to his foreknowledge and that others have been disobedient and according to the assignment that's been given to them, you and I have no idea who they are. And so our responsibility is simply to declare the praises of God and let him bring in, through our declaration of praise, who he would. We have, we have no power to make them come in, but my word, can we declare the praises of God? My word, can we, can we declare all that he has done for us with this hope and this confidence that as we do it, that just as we've been made into all this stuff through the enduring word of God that's been preached to us, so too as we declare the praises of God and preach that enduring word ourselves, others also will come in and join us too. And last thing, guys. Part of this is going to be hard and difficult because, as Peter's alluded to, it's offering spiritual sacrifices. There's pain and difficulty that comes with this. If we're going to see people come to know Jesus, if we're going to declare Jesus' praises and preach the living, enduring word of God, there's going to be difficulty. There's going to be sacrifice. It's going to be hard. 
But the way that we get there, the way that we push through that hardness, is by first and foremost seeing ourselves as these things. Because what does a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen people, God's own special people do? They declare God's praises. They preach the living and enduring word. And in God's grace and mercy, he brings more people to join us so that we can all focus on our heavenly home together. So your homework this week is to dwell on this, to get this deep inside your heart, to to think and ask yourself that question, where am I not seeing myself this way? Pay attention to your thoughts this week. When when you speak these negative words that 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 are lies that's not true about who you are, Take captive those thoughts and say, no, 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 okay, yes, that's something I do need to rid myself of, but who I am is holy, chosen, royal. Yep, I've messed up in these areas, I can see where I need to change, but who I am is God's own special possession. Take captive those thoughts so that we can be about our Father's business and see many more people come and join us. Let's pray together now. Father God, thank you for the great privilege privilege that we have to be your people, chosen, holy, royal, your own special possession. Lord, please help us to hear Peter's words and to renew our minds, to, to see where we've been listening to other voices, whether it comes from our own heart or from the world around us, that that would seek to define us in a different way. And may we come back to the the truth of your scriptures and what they declare to us about who we are. And as we do this, may we understand it profoundly and deeply, but also the purpose for which we have been made into these things, that we might declare your praises, that we might go forth this week to live holy lives, but also declaring your word so that others might join us as part of your people as you have called them to in accordance with your foreknowledge. And we thank you for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.